Hi, I'm Kara Oakley. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, now part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more information. Susie, we're going to be talking with a poet today, and I wanted to ask you, um, you you and I are both fiction writers, but I know we, we both read poetry. What was your first connection to poetry? So my embarrassing story that my mother likes to tell everyone is that in the car, in the backseat on the way to preschool one day, I just announced to her, mommy, I feel a poem coming on. And I just recited this poem out of nowhere and she wrote it down and it's somewhere in our house. So that's embarrassing, but it happened. But I kind of fell out of poetry for a long time. I, like you said, I mostly wrote fiction, maybe a little bit of nonfiction. And so it wasn't until relatively recently, like getting even out of college, that I found some narrative poetry that really drew me in. And one of those was actually a fall for the book author, Molly McCulley Brown, her collection, The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. And she just brought these women in this very real colony, not that far from George Mason, to life and their struggles. That just really hit me. And then Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic. I know I mentioned that before in the podcast, but there's a reason. It just punches me right in the gut. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's doing something innovative with sign language. So that's, I think I'm really drawn to the narrative poetry, which I think speaks to me being a fiction writer. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of similar to you. You know, I, I remember really enjoying poetry as, as a young kid and then became more and more intimidated by it when I was a student and, and, and when I was older. And then I think I found my way back to it because of being in a writing program and, and meeting other poets when they started publishing their work. I felt like, you know, maybe I'm not going to know what I'm, know what I'm, I'm reading, but I want to read my friends, what my friends are writing. And, and once I started doing that, I kind of got back into it. I was like, oh, I don't know why I was so scared of this. And once I just sort of let myself enjoy what they were writing, I got back into poetry very, very quickly. And now I really love teaching poetry. Um, uh, I love teaching uh, Ada Lamone's work. I love teaching uh, Tracy K. Smith. But like you mentioned, uh, Ilya Kaminsky was a great, uh, is a great writer to teach too. And I also, I, I love your, uh, your story about being a little kid and feeling a poem coming on when you were in the car. When a couple of years ago, when my daughter was a little bit younger, we were on like another long car trip and she asked me kind of out of nowhere, she was like, mom, is there a poem that would explode the trees? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but, but it, it sort of seemed to me like she was talking about, she meant to say like a spell, like a magical spell or something, but I love that she used the word poem instead, because just like the idea of thinking about a poem as, as a spell. I, I loved that. Oh my gosh. And seriously, is there a poem that could explode the trees? Listeners, that is your job. Find it or write it. I want to explode the trees with poetry, especially since this is National Poetry Month. What a way to celebrate if not writing an explosive poem. Well, this is, I'm so excited to ask these questions to our guest today, Arthur Z, who is just remarkable. He's um, just put out this new collection, The Glass Constellation, that has over 50 years of his work. So I think he's going to have a lot to say about this. We're really excited to have him. Arthur Z has published 10 books of poetry, including Sightlines, which received the 2019 National Book Award for Poetry, and The Glass Constellation, which includes new and collected poems. Z is the recipient of many honors, including the Jackson Poetry Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and two National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellowships. Welcome, Arthur. Thanks for being here. Thank you. 
So um, your new, your newest book, The Glass Constellation, has poems from your entire career, starting with 1972's The Willow Wind and going up to new poems that you've completed recently. What was the experience like revisiting almost 50 years worth of your own work <laughs> as you were putting this collection together? It was awesome and humbling. In my collected poems, it, if when you look at the table of contents, it says, from the Willow Wind and from Two Ravens, which were my first two books of poetry. So I felt like there were early poems I didn't need to see again, frankly, and I edited those out. And it was uh, a lot of fun just to see where I started and to be able to track the whole evolution of my writing over 50 years was, um, again, kind of amazing. And what a wonderful opportunity and honor to be able to collect everything that I felt deserved to be in one book. And then in my middle period, it was exciting for me to see the very first sequence I wrote, The Leaves of a Dream or The Leaves of an Onion, which opens a book called River River. And then to see how I evolved into some of those extended sequences in following books. And then it was interesting for me to see in the last two books, Compass, Rose, and Sightlines, how instead of putting a book together with sections, I devised different interludes. So Compass Rose has one poem that is interleaved or interspersed throughout the book. And Sightlines has these one-liners like haikus or non sequiturs that uh, go between the poems, but then they all join up in the title poem. So again, it was really wonderful for me to see the evolution of my own work. And lastly, when I assembled the section of new poems, which has a title, The White Orchard, I felt really good in the sense that I could see certain themes that and obsessions that I've carried over the course of my writing career. But I could also see that I was um, not repeating myself, that I was still trying to write different kinds of poems. So I felt uh, heartened and humbled at the end to sort of see this is where I've gotten to. So you've already mentioned that you decided to cut out a few of those early poems you didn't want to see again. How did you, besides those, did you revise any poems that came out in previous mm. collections? Um, how did you choose between what made the cut and what didn't? Thanks. Another great question. I guess I want to start by saying I did a number of revisions on existing poems that I thought were complete and that I was satisfied with. But Interestingly, over time, I remember at different readings, people coming up to me and correcting me about certain things. So these esoteric details are not going to be uh, maybe important for a, a first-time reader of my poetry. But for instance, I remember years ago at New Mexico State University, I read the opening poem before completion. And a fly fisherman came up to me afterwards and he said, Arthur, you have dragonflies folding their wings dragonflies cannot fold their wings, damselflies can fold their wings. And I thought, oh, I will remember that if I ever do. And you and collected and get to make certain factual revisions that are more you know, accurate to the world, I will do that. So in fact, I made a change like that. There's a poem much later called The Flower Path, which is set in Kyoto, Japan. 
and I misremembered the spatial orientation of the statues. And someone from Kyoto Journal wrote me and said, uh, I really love this poem, Arthur, but I think you've got the um, Guanyin, the Canon statues looking in the wrong direction, or you've described it in the opposite direction, and maybe that's poetic license. I thought again, oh, if I ever get the chance to do a uh, collected, I will revise that and just reorganize the spatial orientation so it's true to life, so it's accurate. So there are those kinds of revisions. There are other revisions where I felt like sometimes a poem maybe went on a little too long and I just snipped the ending and trusted that that would work. And then in the early poems, there were just some poems that I felt were rather clunky that didn't work very well and that there were isolated moments that were good, but I couldn't really stand by them. So I just thought I will weed these out. On the other hand, with those early poems, I included a few unusual shape poems that I decided, even though I didn't really follow that in the course of my career, at that time they were worth including because they showed the kind of formal range and experimentation that I was doing very early. So there's a poem called No Hieroglyphics in the Shape of an Hourglass. And I remember someone saying to me years and years ago, Arthur, that's such a cheap trick to do a visual image like that. And I thought, well, you know, there is poetic precedent for it from George Herbert's uh, Easter Wings to Dylan Thomas to Apollinaire. And I thought, you know, I'm going to include these just because they are part of the arc of my work. And, and talking about that, you do use a really big variety of, of structures and forms in your work. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges you've set for yourself in, in using form and structure and, and including you know, um, invented structure as well? Thanks. That's another wonderful question. I think very early on, I tried to use the standard Western forms. So for instance, in a book called Two Ravens, my second book, there, there are two 14-line poems, The Taoist Painter, and He Will Come to My Funeral with a White Flower. Both of those poems are 14 lines. I was thinking of a sonnet structure, but they don't have the normal rhyme scheme that you would uh, find in a sonnet from the English tradition. I just found that writing, for me, with rhymes in English with that kind of pattern was like writing with handcuffs. I felt like I was forcing language into uh, patterns that didn't really fit or if I fulfilled the requirements, they sounded forced to me. So those two poems, I think, shadow a sonnet. For instance, the Taoist painter has what I like to call a turn at the end of the eighth line, which like an Italian sonnet would have. So there's a set of eight lines and a set of six, but they don't have the formal rhyme scheme. So over time, and I, you know, I've tried a Villanelle, I've tried a Sestina that I wasn't happy with either of them. Over time, I felt like I needed to write a poem that was that sounded like me, that had my voice, and um, maybe because I, you know, have a Chinese American background and I draw in a Chinese tradition, I felt like I needed to find forms that worked for me. And in the very last section of the glass constellation, there's a variant of a hyben, a Japanese form. So there are, I'm aware of traditional forms, but over time, I've tried to sort of balance what I call rigor 
and spontaneity, this idea that I want poems to have some kind of inner necessity and pressure behind them. And I also want to have some kind of formal challenge, but maybe one that isn't a traditional Western form. So for instance, the White Orchard, the title poem in the last section, and the title to title poem to sightlines use an invented structure where each line of poetry picks up a word or words from the previous line. So like sight lines, the word sight, I'm walking in sight of the Rio Nambe is the opening line. It picks up the word sight uh, in the title and it cascades through the poem. So parallel lines touch in the infinite, the infinite is here. So it has the word lines and it connects back to the title. So again, I don't necessarily expect an American reader to say, oh my God, this is some invented form Arthur's come up with and look at what he's doing. But for me, it gives me a kind of rigor or a kind of resistance to work language off of. You know, Robert Frost once said, it, you need to have some kind of constraint because otherwise it's like playing tennis without having a net. It's sort of, if you have that net and if you have that point of tension, then all sorts of interesting things can happen. So I'm giving you a long answer, but basically I'm saying I've didn't set out to invent my own forms, but because I felt like the Western forms didn't work very well for me, or I felt too constricted, that I had to sort of evolve my own sort of voice and style. And as I developed that, I felt like I needed some kind of rigor or structure to work against. And that's where those different constraints and created forms came in. And just to close, I'll say, like my recent poems are characterized by having lots of one-line stanzas with dashes. And that form appeals to me because each line has its own integrity. It's like a one-line haiku that exists as a microcosm. But if I can assemble 10 or 15 or 20 of them, then the possibilities of juxtaposition of moving one line against the other, which comes out of Chinese, ancient Chinese poetry, that allows me to create different worlds and resonances. And so that's a form that I didn't like preconceive, but over time I can say, oh, in the last five years of my 50 years of writing, I've really been drawn to this form because it's open-ended, but it also has a kind of rigor to it. I love this idea of rigor and spontaneity working together. So it sounds like with certain forms, you, you went into a poem kind of with that idea. You wanted to play with a certain structure, but is that always the case? How do you, it sounds like it, certain forms haven't worked out for you, like you said. So how do you know what the right form is for a poem? Uh, another wonderful question. I, I think I can't intellectually know ahead of time what the form is going to be, or if I do try to write that way, they're usually not very successful because I find myself, again, hindered or confined by the expectation or preconception of what that form should be. And so it's kind of like, for me, the way a poem starts can be very mysterious. It can be an image, it could be a musical phrase, it could be something just a phrase I don't quite understand. But to me, it's organic. It's like a seed that grows and I have to nourish it. And if I know too soon where the poem is going, 
that's bad because I'm in too much control. And so I tend to write sloppily, making a mess of things, writing phrases. And then as the poem grows, I can start to see certain phrases that interest me and certain images or things I don't quite understand. And as that grows, I can begin to see a kind of a structure. I can say that at this point, sometimes I'll write a poem and then I'll say, oh, that's just the beginning. I'll know then that's a reason, a justification for developing a sequence, that the poem in 18 or 20 lines isn't sufficient, that I'm just setting in motion larger issues, and then I have to discover what those are. So I found over time I can just viscerally uh, distinguish whether a poem is complete or whether it needs to be expanded into something much larger. But again, to find the organization of a sequence isn't that easy. Usually I write four or five sections and then I start to think about the structure and is there some kind of through line? Is there some kind of thematic thread? And I do that by laying the sections out on the floor and looking and asking myself, are there certain repeating patterns? Are there certain motifs? And then it will be like, oh, well, the structure for this could be say tea ceremony, drinking tea, because the image of a bowl or tea or leaves are in these poems. And so it, it sort of grows organically. I can't work by thinking, okay, now I'm gonna write a poem using tea ceremony as a structure and it's gonna have this many sections. That never works. We also want to ask about how place informs your writing. You've lived in New Mexico for a long time, but you also write poems that, that span the globe and, and often uh, poems that span multiple places within just a single poem. So I was curious about how, um, how you use place in writing. Well, I think place and space are intimately connected. I like to layer places. I mean, occasionally I will write a poem that just digs in in one place and tries to just go very deep. But oftentimes I like to jump around and, as you say, different locations from around the world are being converged or being brought into the focus of the poem. And for me, there's this idea that place or space is under constant construction, that it's not static, that, you know, if, if I go outside in the orchard and sit there, all kinds of things are in motion. Um, and it's not the simple sort of just being able to be rooted in one place, but things are in continual flux. And for me, part of the challenge of living in the world today is like it or not, Things are so interconnected in ways we can't always see or foresee or anticipate. I'm not just talking about the internet, but you know, in contemporary physics, there's this idea of the butterfly effect, that a butterfly flapping its wings off the coast of the Yucatan can be related to a tsunami off the coast of Japan that something very small can create resonances that become very large. And so I find myself endlessly fascinated with how we can glimpse sort of pieces of this larger vision, but maybe only the divine gets to see it all. But as limited human beings, we see glimmering shards, we see pieces of this larger cosmos at work. And for me, place uh, then, and the layering of place has to do with different worlds where maybe simultaneous things are going on, but, and it's not overtly stated, so a reader does have to stretch a little bit sometimes, but there are reasons or rationales for why these different worlds are being brought into collision. 
and into the attention uh, for a reader to have to grapple with. Oh, wow. I, I found your description, along with what you're just saying, I found your description of your writing process is so recognizable. I am not very good at writing poetry. I'm, I'm a fiction writer, but I, and I'm sure Kara has, have laid out our pieces and have looked at the, the strings between it and everything. And so that, that was really wonderful. Um, and this, this makes me think, Kara and I both teach at George Mason University, and a number of our students are most intimidated by poetry. And I found in the past was, you know, because it might feel a little unfamiliar for them. So how, how do you recommend that students or people who are new to poetry or want to get into poetry, but are a little nervous can kind of get past that and open themselves up to really experiencing it? Thanks. I'm going to give you another long answer. I hope that's okay. Yes. Uh, In public school and junior high school, poetry was my worst subject. And I remember cringing, being terrified in junior high school when the English teacher said, okay, now write, you know, and you have like 45 minutes, write an essay on the hidden meaning of the albatross in Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And I was like, oh my God, there's a correct answer here, you know, and I have to think about what that is. And I just felt poetry was really intimidating, that it was slightly scary, that it had maybe meanings that... I maybe couldn't see that I needed or should be able to see. And so through junior high school and much of high school, it just, poetry just sounded intimidating to me. It was like, oh my God, this is really difficult. It's esoteric, it's arcane. Um, But when I started to write poems, my whole approach became different because I remember reading poems by Yeats uh, early in college and not knowing what Geyer's were or Byzantium or his ideas of history or mythology. But the music of the language, the sound and the rhythms were so strong. I felt like I can trust this in a way. I just, there's an incantation and spell with language. And so that's one thing I think that's really important for students to do is to not worry too much about having to look for meaning or symbolism or analysis too quickly. And uh, T.S. Eliot once said, a a poem communicates before it's understood. And I would extend that and say it communicates in the body, viscerally, physically, before it's understood. So if a student listens to the sound, the rhythm, where the silences are, if uh, a student starts to pick out images that interest them, I taught for 22 years at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and the students who came in and said, oh, Arthur, I know what a poem is. I'm ready to write. Those were always really dreadful poems that I got. And if I I discovered if I did things like, okay, I'm going to trick the students into writing poems without their realizing it, I got some really fascinating results. So I would do things like, Imagine you're going into a hardware store, you know, write down all the physical tools you would see. And then I would take a found text and read, and I would just say, write down any word whose sound interests you. And then I would have the students connect between the words that they like the sound of to physical objects and create phrases. Suddenly, it was like these astonishing, startling poems started to come out. And I thought, oh, you know, as a teacher, this is a lesson for me. If I just let the students write what they think is a poem, I get very derivative, predictable stuff. But if I set something up where 
they don't quite know what's going on and they're just exploring from one stage to the other. There's that imaginative play and all sorts of discoveries can happen. So to apply that to how students should approach poetry, sometimes I think it's best to tell the students, again, don't worry too much about the larger meaning or symbolism, but look at phrases that really interest you that have what I call heat or light, that have some light for life force to them. Think about what those phrases are and what is it, what's happening with that in the poem and how is the sound and the rhythm. So it's sort of like working piecemeal, working around the sort of barricade that is erected, I think, by a lot of teaching of poetry where students are taught, oh, poetry is going to be difficult. You're going to have to look for a certain interpretation, a certain meaning, and that's acceptable. But to sort of take that all apart and to sort of get more physically in the language, then I think there can be a lot of excitement and surprise and wonderful conversations. I, I love that. I feel like uh, getting rid of the, the idea that they have to find a hidden meaning is like always the first step to take with students. And, and they are, they're so much more receptive when they can just start with what's in front of you. Let's, let's work right, with that absolutely. first. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask about the idea of poetry in public life as well, beyond students and uh, and everything. You've you've served as chancellor for the Academy of American Poets, and you were also the first poet laureate for the city of Santa Fe. What role do you think poetry plays in public life? I think poetry uh, plays an important role in public life. I guess I want to start by saying, personalizing it in my own family. My older brother's a doctor. His three sons are One's a doctor, one's a hedge fund trader, uh, one's a scientist. They're, they're not um, coming from poetic backgrounds. But one thing that really interests me about the role of poetry is when each of my older brother's sons got married, they contacted me and said, Arthur, we have to have a poem for the wedding. We cannot have a wedding without a poem. And I thought that was so interesting that there was this need, and there is this need for at certain key uh, places in one's life, weddings, funerals, moments of transition, uh, people turn to poetry. And there's something about the grace and elegance of language, the compression, almost a kind of ceremony or accent that people who normally don't read poetry find that intense need for a poem. So that really interests me that that role is there. And of course, you know, you can say Amanda Gorman with Biden's inauguration, that that was a very public display of a role of a poem. I think poetry has a really important role to play publicly. It varies from country to country. So I'm not going to go into like the role of poetry in China because that becomes a whole very different thing. But as poet laureate of Santa Fe, I tried to do all sorts of interesting experiments where I held poetry readings all around town instead of like at the College of Santa Fe or St. John's College, which would be predictable. I held an environmental poetry reading at the Nature Conservancy at the Audubon Center. I took the historic Palace of the Governors, which was the old capital in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I invited uh, poets to read poems based on important places around the world they had visited and written poems to. At the opening to the farmer's market in downtown Santa Fe, what's called the Rail Yard District, I curated the public schools, got elementary school students 
to write about the importance of a farmer's market of fresh produce and having a green space, a park downtown. It was an old rundown railroad yard that got renovated. And uh, one of the things I loved as being a City of Santa Fe Poet Laureate was then curating the poems, publishing them in the newspaper, uh, overseeing the publication of a book by elementary school students. And then they read at the opening of the farmer's market. And there were a couple hundred people there who normally wouldn't go to poetry reading who just loved it. So I think it's an area that isn't really fully tapped. I think there is a need for it. And I'm heartened to see that the National Endowment for the Arts that young people are reading poems more than ever. So I think it's actually an area we can work on and encourage poetry to have a more public role, not in a you know, propagandistic or didactic role, but in a role that really serves a kind of deep-seated uh, uh, placing, locating oneself you know, at these particular places and times. Well, thank you so much, Arthur. Um, I wondered if, uh, to end, would you mind reading one of your shorter poems from uh, The Glass Constellation, one of the new ones? Do you have one you'd like to hear? I'm putting it back on you. For a <laughs> um, we, we, we were looking at the opening one, actually, uh, Circumference, maybe. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. That'd be fun. Let's see. Circumference. Vanilla farmers in Madagascar sit in the dark with rifles. At 2 a.m., after a thunderstorm, I lurched down the hallway to check the oak floor under a skylight, place a towel in a pan. As if armed, waiting for a blue string to trip a thief, I listen in the hush at a point where ink flows out of a pen onto a white Sahara of a page. Adjusting the rear view mirror in the car before backing out of the garage, I ask, what is the logarithm of a dream? How do you trace a sphere whose center is nowhere? It is hard to believe farmers pollinate vanilla orchids with toothpick-sized needles, yet we do as needed. Pouring syrup on a pancake, I catch the scent of vines. Race along the circumference, sensing what it's like to sit in the dark with nothing in my hands. Well, thank you again, Arthur, so much. We've really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. This episode is guest edited by our intern, Marissa Joyce. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.